Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Associate Professor of Islamic Studies and the Anthropology of Religion, Ali Reza Dustar from the Divinity School. Professor Dustar is also the chair of the new social science core sequence, Religion, Cosmos, Conscience, and Community, and a faculty co-director of the Martin Marty Center for the Public Understanding of Religion. Professor Dustar is here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Ali Reza Dustar. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So, Ali Reza, can you give me a general overview of your career path from your undergraduate years to your position now at the University of Chicago? Absolutely. So I'm, a, I'm an anthropologist by training. And uh, I primarily teach courses on religion. So I'm, I'm actually based in the Divinity School, which is a school that is oriented around the study of religion. But I took a very windy path to get to where I am. I started out in my undergraduate as an electrical engineering major, and I studied electrical engineering at the University of Tehran in Iran. And the way the university system works in Iran is that you actually choose your majors in the process of applying to school. And once you get in, it's very difficult to make a shift, especially if you're making a kind of a wholesale change from an engineering field, let's say, or I don't know what, what are called the basic sciences to a social science or vice versa. It's pretty pretty difficult to do that. What happened for me was that I got a pretty good score on this nationwide university entrance exam. They rank you and you there's a you provide a list of schools and majors that you're interested in and I got into I think it was like my second choice or something like that. I had a I could make 100 choices and I, I got into the second one which was electrical engineering at the University of Tehran. And, um, but I very quickly realized that it wasn't actually the field that I was interested in, but I was kind of stuck with it when I got in. And I was interested from my high school years in the social sciences and in the humanities, and especially in education. And just by way of background, my parents both at the time were faculty. My mother is a, she's a scholar of education and second language acquisition. So I was familiar a little bit from her work with just scholarship and in, in education and what's called critical pedagogy and, and things like that. And also with a little bit more broadly with the humanities. And then my father is, is, an, is a civil engineer by training. So I was familiar to some extent with both worlds, but I ended up first going the engineering route. I really disliked it. And I started doing various kinds of work to find a kind of a satisfaction outside of the university. So I taught in elementary school, extracurricular classes in astronomy and in English. I taught in high school. And it was really a way for me to experiment with education as a potential field to pursue afterwards. And I also did a little bit of work in educational technology. And meanwhile, I worked in television for a few years as a newscaster and in radio also. That was a radio news announcer in, in English for what was it like maybe eight, nine months? And then I moved to TV for a few years. You know, I was really just experimenting with different possibilities career-wise. And by the end of my college, I was pretty sure I didn't want to be in academia. And what happened was that I was exploring possible career paths in education and technology. 
And I was really interested, this was around the year 2000, 2001, I was really interested in online education and in things like interactive books and games that are geared towards education. I'd done a little bit of work in animation, so I was kind of wanting to bridge that maybe with educational interests. And uh, so I came to the U.S. I was in New York for a few months, and I started looking around for jobs, and I couldn't find anything. And uh, this was right at the, this. it was called the dot-com bust, or the, what was it, the dot-com boom or bust or something like this. And And so I started looking then at schools and the programs that I found that most satisfied my interests were programs, uh, master's programs in educational technology. So I applied and I ended up getting into Harvard University, the technology and education program there. And so the in 2002 is when I really made this shift to beginning to in earnest study humanities and humanistic and social scientific inquiries, specifically into education. But the nice thing about the MA program, and this is the case with a lot of MA programs, is they give you a lot of latitude with what you want to pursue. And one of my first courses in the education program was with an anthropologist. Her name is Catalina Lacerna. She worked in education and was interested in learning inside and outside of school and was really interested in thinking about education and technology in relation to learning. But she got us to read a bunch of material in the psychology of education in the philosophy of technology and thinking about language and media as various instruments in relation to pedagogy and to learning. And that really got me hooked. And I was really interested, especially not only in the theoretical frameworks that I was being exposed to through the course and then other work that I did with Catalina, but also in the method. So the method in anthropology is the the kind of sine qua non, the primary method, the one that anthropology is best known for is ethnography, which means literally writing people. And the way that it tends to work is that you spend a lot of time with whatever group of people, whatever community, whatever group of practitioners you're interested in trying to understand. And sometimes people call it deep hanging out. You really spend a lot of time the, the ideal is the ideal that's gotten instituted in the field is about a year, but people sometimes do longer. Really about a year of doing just hanging out with people, talking to them, doing what's called participant observation. So participating in the specific practices that you're interested in understanding, but also observing them as you as you do the activities yourself. So I really got hooked when I got exposed to this. And when I tried my hand a little bit in ethnography, I did a project towards the end of, well, towards the middle of my MA program. It was only a one-year program, but I switched to a year and a half. I also had a, uh, my first son was born at the time. So I, I was under pressure to kind of be able to manage both family and and study and also make some money to be able to actually afford studying at Harvard. And so I did this project on blogging among Iranians, which at the time had really taken off. This was the year 2003. It was, they were saying at the time that Persian language blogging is probably, Persian language is probably the fourth, sometimes they were saying the third, fourth largest language in terms of the number of participants among bloggers. And so I got really interested in that. And I did several months of ethnographic work, which meant not that I went and met the bloggers in person, but that I actually created a blog myself. And I started blogging in Persian and in English, two separate blogs. And I was interacting for months with 
with these Iranian bloggers and really trying to understand what they were interested in, what made them, what brought them to blog, what brought them to the activity of blogging in the specific ways that they were blogging, the specific things that they were interested in, but especially particular kinds of customs that were forming around the activity of blogging. So for instance, there was this really interesting thing I noticed, which was that People had some reciprocal relations among one another in the sense of if you visited a blog, then it was kind of expected that you would then visit theirs and so on and so forth. So in order to understand the material, in order to be able to properly analyze it, I did an additional couple courses in anthropology. I took a class in language and culture and one in the anthropology of religion. And that just really deepened my interest in the field. And I ended up deciding to apply to PhD programs in anthropology. And I published an article based on a research project I did on blogging and the use of language for one of my classes. So that really was what affected the shift to anthropology as a discipline. So from engineering to education and then anthropology, I studied anthropology at Harvard. I did not work on blogging for my PhD. I was interested in several things, but I ended up settling on basically magic and the occult sciences and the new age in Iran among middle-class people. But um, I'll say that what the project really did for me was to bring together an interest in the understanding of people and of people in terms of their culture, in terms of the values that they hold dear, in terms of the practices that they're committed to, and in terms of how they understand themselves in relation to those values and in relation to those practices. So that's one broad set of interests, but I wanted to connect all of that to the understanding of religion and to think about how religious ideas, religious practices, religious texts, other media that are produced in specific religious traditions, how these can be linked to the first set of things I was talking about, how it can be linked to how people understand themselves, the kinds of practices that they're, they commit themselves to and so on. You were not exaggerating when you said you had a winding path to your current position. How would you explain your current research interest to someone who's not in the field? For me, I'm now on my second major project, which in some way deals with anthropology of religion. In, in both of my projects, I've been interested in thinking about how one can understand 20th and 21st century Iranian society and politics in relation to a number of religious formations. But those religious formations are not just ones that you would say a specific religious commitment or a specific religious idea has shaped a particular political practice. Sometimes it's the opposite. It's specific kinds of formations of politics, particular kinds of practices of state. So for instance, what is allowed and what is not allowed? What is sanctioned and what is prohibited? up to something very simple like what is considered superstition and what is not considered superstition, what is considered rational, and in what way are those things distinguished, and through what processes do they become sanctioned or not sanctioned. I'm interested in thinking about all of that, but also thinking about how forms of thinking that we would not immediately imagine as religious are also entangled with those kinds of practices and those kinds of thinking that we tend to imagine as being religious. So the theological on the religious side or the religious law or legal Islamic jurisprudence, for instance, but then on the other side, scientific forms of inquiry, empirical experimentation, and things like this. 
and to add more the the field of art the field of artistic creation of media right so like filmmaking tv serials music things like this i'm interested in thinking about all of these as one big constellation that comes together in complex ways to shape people's attitudes people's commitments people's practices so in the first project which i talked about a little bit i worked on magic the occult and the new age and what i was really interested in was to get a sense of how it was that in the late 20th century and in the early 21st century, you all of a sudden had a rise, a dramatic rise in interest among middle-class Iranians in New Age spirituality. So in things like self-help, in certain forms of spirituality that supposedly originated in India and in the Far East, so like yoga, meditation, certain kinds of Hinduism. But fundamentally transformed and reappropriated through Europe and North America. So there's this whole new age movement with its texts and practices that gets imported into Iran and was really taking off in the early 21st century. So I was interested in understanding how that had happened. And it was also connected to all kinds of practices that people usually think of in terms of magic. So fortune telling, the creation of talismans, appealing to various spirits to help you find treasure or to increase your wealth or to be able to find love or to be able to win back a lost love and things like that. And I was interested in how it was that middle-class Iranians had got interested in this, but also in how they were negotiating for themselves what it meant to be rational people, what it meant to be people who valued scientific kinds of thinking and at the same time were interested in pursuing these these things. So that was my first project. It, it uh, led to a book called The Iranian Metaphysicals. And I, I realized also that what I had been studying went far beyond just the late 20th century and early 21st century. There were roots to what I was looking at that went back to the late 19th century. And then there was a much older tradition of Islamic magic called science, as well as mysticism that is centuries old. And I had to really understand all of these to some extent to be able to grasp what was happening in the early 21st century. So that was the first project. The second project, very briefly, grew out of the first to some extent. When I was doing my research on the occult and on magic, I noticed that there were some worries among conservative activists and religious leaders in the rise of what they called Satan worship or Satanism. And what they really meant was partly a worry about uh, heavy metal music and young people getting interested in heavy metal music and through heavy metal music also making changes to their lifestyles and to their forms of dress and their you know their hairdos and body piercings and and so on and much like a kind of satanist scare that happened in the US in the 70s and 80s Something similar happened in Iran in the early 2000s. I would say 2010 was probably the peak of it. And I got interested in that. And through that, the exploration of what I'm calling anti-Satanism, so these kinds of conservative attempts to quash Satan worship in whatever way possible, so including putting restrictions on heavy metal music, for instance, and how it's practiced. Through that, I got interested in understanding more broadly what Satan even meant in the Islamic tradition and how Satan as a figure had informed Islamic and revolutionary thought from the revolution in 1979 onwards. Because what I realized was that I had an imagination of what Satan was. I had a kind of a preconception of what Satan was. 
And I think a lot of people who have looked at Iran and the Iranian revolution, they've heard the famous epithet that Ayatollah Khomeini had for America as the great Satan, for instance. They presume they know what that means because they presume just from their backgrounds and maybe their familiarity with Christianity, what Satan means. But I realize that it's actually very, very different in the Islamic context, in, in the Iranian context. And so I'm now writing a book about Satan and about the politics of confronting Satan, but also trying to understand Satan. And part of that is about heavy metal music, but part of it is about various kinds of theological explorations among the leaders of the revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, Ali Shariati, the famous sociologist, to really grapple with the figure of Satan and think about his theological, but also his political significance. And that has brought me to a realization that not only is Satan very complex in the Islamic tradition, he's also not always very bad, right? There's ways that he can be thought about as a, as potentially a figure to think with and, and even in some semi-heterodox formulations in the Islamic tradition as potentially even an ally for humankind. So that's now the book that I'm trying to write. Wow, that's fascinating. I do want to switch gears really quickly and ask you, Ali Reza, about your childhood. You grew up in Iran, is that correct? I grew up all over the place. So I was born in the U.S. I was in California until I was four. And um, then I grew up in Iran. I was in Tehran and then in a little town by the Caspian Sea until I was 10. And then from 10 to 16, I was in Ottawa, Canada. That's when my parents were PhD students. And then back in Iran for my final year of high school and my college. So up to, what is that then, 23 or something like that, 23, 24, and then back to the U.S. for, for grad school and now work. So what were you like as a child in middle and high school? And what was your relationship with school like? I think I was a nerd which was probably something you hear from a lot of faculty. I really loved reading books and I read all kinds of books. I was very interested in astronomy. So I had a small telescope that my uncle got me when I was in middle school and I would use it to try to find and watch some of the major planets. I would look at Jupiter, look at Saturn, Mars, a double star or a, or a kind of cluster here or there. And um, so I read a lot about astronomy and I, for a long time I thought that I would actually be an astronomer. But I was also interested in fiction. So I, I did read quite a bit of fiction and I was interested in other sciences. The other thing I might say is that because I was born the year before the Islamic revolution in Iran, I really grew up with the revolution. I'm pretty much the same age as the revolution. And what that meant growing up was that I was very interested in politics from the beginning. I, it was all around me. I was hearing it all the time. And my parents were interested in politics. So I got it from them. But also if any family in Iran is bound to have multiple kinds of political commitments within it that are in, in tension with one another. And sometimes people argue or fight with one another, but also they're loving and they get together and they have their parties and so on. So I had people within my family who were Islamists, and there were people who were communists, there were people who were more uh, liberal and and so on. And so from a young age, I got exposed to just the fact that people hold very different political views and political commitments. And I was, I was constantly finding myself having to navigate that. 
I think that's partly what made me an anthropologist and what made me interested in both religion and politics. And then one last thing I'll say is that because I also moved around so much from California to Tehran, from Tehran to the Caspian Sea, from the Caspian Sea to Ottawa, from Ottawa back to the Caspian and from there to Tehran and then the U.S., I experienced a lot of culture shocks. So in every move, I had to find myself again in relation to a society that I experienced as very different from me. And it didn't matter where that was. When I came to Canada at the age of 10, I experienced that. But then when we went back to Iran, I experienced it again in Iran. And so I think that also motivated me, really put me in a place where I couldn't avoid having to think about difference and having to negotiate difference, which is really at the heart of what anthropology is as a discipline. So when you look back on your career, what would you say would be the biggest challenge that you faced and how did you overcome it? I would say probably the biggest challenge that I had was just figuring out what I was interested in and figuring out what I wanted to commit my life to. You know, when I was an undergraduate and I was studying engineering and I really disliked it, there was a period when I was really bitter and negative about just education in general. But what I ended up doing with that, which helped me overcome it, was to really rechannel the the disappointment I had about the educational system more broadly and about the field of engineering more specifically into thinking about education historically, philosophically, and practically. And I think I've had to do that several times. So I ended up where I am in part by thinking about and trying to grapple with my own difficulties with some of the academic fields that I've entered and the professional fields that I've been entangled with. You know, it's really a privilege that I had just having time to figure these things out, to explore, to experiment, and to let things fall into their place. I think it has been extremely helpful. So I think all of this allowed me to think and explore and just wait and let something settle. And the other privilege I had was that because I was born in the U.S., it was very easy for me to travel. I'm a dual citizen. I'm a citizen of Iran and I'm a citizen of the U.S. And it's been very, very easy for me to navigate and move from one context to another without having to worry about visas and passports and so on. It's the opposite of a challenge in a sense. It's a privilege. And I think it's very important to highlight that. And finally, what would you say is the most gratifying thing about the work that you do? Oh, so many things. Well, I would. So among the so many things, I would maybe focus on two. One is teaching. Working with undergraduates and with graduate students is just extremely satisfying and gratifying. Brings me so much joy. It's it's something that I, that keeps me on my toes intellectually, kind of spiritually, even just physically. Right, like getting up in the morning and thinking, okay, I have to go and talk to a bunch of really smart students about a very complex idea. So just yesterday, I was teaching at eight thirty a.m. I had to teach. Michel Foucault's thinking about political spirituality and about techniques of the self. And these are very complex ideas. And I was grappling with these first and second year undergraduate students in my class. And it's just a ton of fun. And students at the University of Chicago are really brilliant. They're really engaging. They're really interested in complex thought and in trying to figure things out. And so that's really gratifying. It's a little different with graduate students, but no less gratifying with the, with the graduate students. And then the other thing is scholarship. I mean, doing research is something that just keeps me consistently energized. I can't wait right now to dive back into my writing about Satan in this book project. 
um, at just doing research, talking to people, getting out of my comfort zone and hanging out with people who are very different from me and trying to understand what makes them tick. That's something that I'm that con- consistently makes me happy. And the last thing, which is a relatively recent turn in my work, is I'm getting more and more interested in creative forms of expression in relation to some of the scholarship that I've been doing. So I've been writing a little bit, experimenting with both non-academic, non-fiction, but also with fiction and with other forms of media. So I'm, I just did a, an interview actually with a musician in Iran, but the way I did it was in the form of, uh, we called it an interview with an electric guitar. I, I asked questions and then the guitar responds rather than the person responding. And it's just a way for me to think about how to explore ideas and how to explore social and human phenomena through means other than just academic writing. And I, I think in the future, I'll be doing more and more of that while also, of course, keeping the research and teaching side of my work going. I've been speaking with Professor Ali Reza Dustar. Professor, thank you for your time. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Thanks for listening.